Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano, and today we are joined by my colleagues Jennifer Gray and Tom Stout as we continue our breakdown of the Biden tax plan. Last week, we discussed the Biden proposal to increase the rate on ordinary income for individuals. This week, we stay on the individual side of the ledger and we'll get at the Biden proposal to increase the tax rate on capital gains. Last week, I called the Biden proposal to raise the top rate on ordinary income from 37 to 39.6% to be a modest one, at least relative to some of the other Biden proposals. But one thing I didn't mention that I should have is just a reminder that that 37% top rate is merely temporary. It is scheduled to revert to 39.6% at the end of 2025, unless Congress acts to extend that lower rate. But now let's discuss Biden's proposal on the capital gains rate. And modest is not exactly the word that comes to mind. His plan would raise the rate from 20% all the way to 39.6%. Not quite double, but close. Now look, I know that the real tax rate on capital gains is higher than 20% because of the net investment income tax. And I also know that the Biden proposal would only apply to very high earners, those making more than $1 million. But hey, there's no denying it. The Biden proposal on capital gains is bold. And it's bold for several reasons. One is just what we said, the sheer magnitude of the increase. Second, it's bold because it erases the longstanding distinction between the ordinary income rate and the long-term capital gains rate. And finally, it's bold because of other provisions that are likely required to make a 39.6% capital gains rate work. Honestly, there are so many pieces and angles to the capital gains plan, we just can't do it all in one episode. So consider today to be part one of a two-parter on cap gains. Okay, so let's get into the topic. I think we should start with what really is, I believe, the big picture item for the Biden campaign, and that's the notion that capital gains and ordinary income should be taxed at the same rate. Now, if you're listening and that makes you mad, it's worth remembering that the last president to sign legislation into law that equalized the two rates was that notorious high-tax crusader, Ronald Reagan. Yep, back in the Tax Reform Act of 1986, the two rates were equalized and remained there until the ordinary income rate began creeping up. Now, to be fair to former President Reagan, the facts were reversed then. The 86 Act brought ordinary income rates down to match the already lower capital gains rate. Biden is proposing the reverse, increasing the capital gains rate to match the higher ordinary income number. So, Jennifer, first question to you. This distinction between capital gains and ordinary income, this notion that we had that capital gains should be subject to a lower rate, What's the argument supporting that policy that we've had for years? Well, I think we've heard the arguments numerous times. They, they won't be any surprise to folks who follow this at all. But, you know, I think the first is the idea that capital gains are not adjusted for inflation. So some of the gains that are long-term gains that folks are receiving are probably attributable to price level increases, not real gains. So that's, I think one of the arguments. Another one is particularly with capital gains from corporate income, from stocks, et cetera, that uh, those capital gains are attributable to the corporate income and that those are taxed already at the 21% corporate rate before the individual gets them. And they can be taxed there as high as 23.8%, as you indicated. So you have income that's coming back through the form of capital gain as the stock price goes up. Uh, and again, that's income that's helped creating that stock increase and has already been taxed at the corporate level before 
for with a capital gain, and it's realized that the individual tax again there. Beyond that, I think you know, one could argue there's a bias against savings that perhaps the capital gain tax could discourage investment that can help grow the economy and perhaps encourages consumption. And then, of course, there's always the issue with the lock-in effect that because of the capital gains rate and because of its somewhat unique character will folks have some control over the timing of when it comes into play, when those gains are realized, that if the rate is high or if there is a rate attacks there, sometimes folks could uh, have a lock-in effect in that they don't want to realize it. So they keep their investment in the current investment as opposed to perhaps selling that and then moving that investment to something that might be uh, more effective for the economy and help more economic growth. Wow, that's a pretty good list uh, there, Jennifer, and they're all pretty compelling. I mean, we've seen those ideas bounce around. Look, on the inflation point, I mean, this is why we keep hearing, at least one reason why we keep hearing the Trump administration talk about indexing capital gains, whether or not they have the authority to do that, put that aside for a different day. On this question of the double taxation of, of th that income, we heard a lot of that during the George W. Bush years that ultimately, I think, in part drove the policy behind the, the, the Bush tax. So we heard it all over again when we were debating tax reform not that long ago uh, when the Senate was pursuing that corporate integration plan as sort of the holy grail of, of tax policy, all supporting those things. So those are all good arguments, which leads me to go back to you then, Tom. So. What are the arguments then for having the two rates be the same? Or the, you know, how do you counter what Jennifer just said that justifies having them be equalized? Well, there, there is another side to that story. But at the first, I think you know what's driving this in the first instance is that capital gains overwhelmingly skew to the wealthy. And addressing wealth inequality is, is a major democratic theme in this election, it's going to continue to be a major democratic theme, which is the reason that every major Democratic candidate for president uh, in this go-around uh, had proposed uh, raising the capital gains rate back to ordinary, except Amy Klobuchar, who was going to stop at 30 percent. And we'll talk about that next time when we talk about revenue, why she stopped there. And 90 percent of capital gains go to the top 20 percent uh, in, in wealth, uh, in income. Uh, and in fact, more than half go to the top one-tenth of one percent. Uh, so they really do skew to the wealthy. As to the, the policies, you know, there, there are counters to, to all of the, the, the points that Jennifer raised, which are the traditional reasons for arguing for a lower capital gains rate. As far as taxing inflationary gains, the flip side of that is, uh, at least under current law, taxpayers get to defer the tax on capital gains, which probably offsets most of those inflationary gains, the, the, the time value of money being what it is. In terms of double taxation on corporate income, you can argue about how corporate income is taxed and how much of it is, is not taxed at the corporate level because of expensing, because of the interest deduction. But it's important to keep in mind that half of uh, capital gains are not coming from corporate stock. They're coming from other assets like real estate. In terms of lock-in effect, there are other ways to address the lock-in effect, and, and some of them are being uh, discussed by some of the presidential candidates. For instance, marking the market, at least financial assets, or taxing capital gains at death. And we're going to talk about that more next time. And then in terms of providing an investment incentive, there hasn't really been any long-term evidence that it's had an effect, uh, at lowering capital gains rates and raising them. As you point out, John, we've done both in the past. There hasn't been much evidence that, that it had much effect on savings and investment. So there, there's a flip side to, to all of those arguments. Interesting. You know, to your point about the capital gains skewing towards the wealthy, you know, I worked on, on the Ways and Means Committee on Capitol Hill during the, the, the Bush tax cut years, and 
Uh, we spent a lot of time looking at that issue, and there's just really no way around it. Yeah, you know, there, there, you, you might hear somebody make the counterpoint that, uh, you know, X percent of people who receive capital gains are middle class or something like that. But in terms of absolute dollars, absolutely. Most of the value and the, the dollars associated with capital gains do skew to the wealthy, and there's, there's just simply no way around that point. So that is the valid counterpoint, and I think that's exactly what Biden is trying to, trying to say here. So, okay, Jennifer, now that we've sort of got this argument and you know, set up in terms of who benefits and why you may or may not have different rates on capital gains, let's just talk about who we're talking about. What, what's the what, what group of taxpayer are we talking about when we talk about those that receive capital gains? Well, I suspect broader than what folks would traditionally think of. I think the traditional capital gains that folks think of first is the stock market. Someone buys a share of XYZ company, a share for $20, sells it a couple years later for $35, has a 15% capital gain. So I think that's traditionally what folks think of, but it certainly can be broader than that. You know, certainly with pass-through entities, your sole proprietorships, your partnerships, because of the way those are taxed and the way the character is retained, to the extent those entities have a capital gain, that can pass through to their owners and have that capital gain taxed on their individual returns and, of course, being taxed at the capital gains rate, whatever that might be. Real estate, of course, huge when you think of capital gains. Of course, you have large real estate investors who are investing in various properties, uh, selling those, perhaps buying new properties, etc. But of course, you also have your mom and pop investors who may own one rental property or maybe one small storefront that they rent out. So uh, certainly those folks as well. You know, real estate can get a little complicated when you're talking about capital gains because, of course, you have 1031 exchange uh, that can come into play. You have depreciation recapture. But uh, certainly, I think real estate's capital gains is a, a huge component of their business and things that they are thinking about. And then beyond that, just just other entrepreneurs beyond real estate. Just, you know, if you happen to own a local store, if you own the property as well, that could come into play. You may not think of yourself as a real estate investor, but that certainly could be the case. Capital gains can apply to a lot of properties, not just real estate, not just stocks and bonds, but other items folks might uh, own as well. And then, of course, there's the issue of uh, a carry when you come to entrepreneurs, depending on the way a particular investment is set up, you could have someone, one of the partners or someone else involved who has uh, carried interest in that property. And of course, that's that's a huge issue there with how that carried interest might be capped, uh, taxed. Would that be ca- taxed at a capital gains rate or an ordinary income rate, et cetera? Yeah, uh, it's such a good point. You know, we got can't lose sight of so many small business owners or partners and partnerships, et cetera. I mean, get capital gains just sort of the new ordinary course of that business. So it's not just, you know, people heavily invested in the stock market and other things. It's a pretty broad swath of people. Tom, on this question of carried interest, just talk about that a little bit. So we've seen so many proposals to deal with carried interest over the years. This kind of does what all those things we're trying to do in one fell swoop, doesn't it? Uh, sure. Um, the, the, the question has been all along whether carried interest should really be taxed as ordinary income because it's returned for services. And if we change the treatment of capital gains and treat it like ordinary income, we've eliminated the difference. Yeah. Well, arguably, it's a return for services. That's sort of the whole crux of the debate. But it's a valid point. I mean, that's certainly what people have been arguing is that that, that's what it's all about. And so all the complex proposals we've seen to deal with carried interest, you know, with the Sanders bill and we've had other bills over the years that all tried to do that. They're very complex. It's a pretty simple way at getting to that solution uh, is, hey, let's just equalize rates. And then that whole incentive is gone. Okay, Tom, we talked a lot about the capital gains rate, 
But what Biden's saying here is not just capital gains. I probably should have mentioned this earlier. He's applying this rate to dividends as well, right? Capital gains and dividends always sort of seem to go side by side here. So what's, let's come back to dividends for just a second. What's the argument for raising the rate on dividends at the same time as doing capital gains? Well, it's interesting, John. Dividends haven't been much discussed, even by the presidential candidates. I think it's just been assumed that the dividend rate was going to follow the capital gains rate back to ordinary treatment. A lot of that's historical. It's only been since 2003, the Bush tax cuts, that there was uh, that dividends were not taxed as ordinary income. So that may explain why there hasn't been a lot of discussion of it. Dividends raise potentially the same wealth disparity questions that uh, uh, that are raised by capital gains, of course. And you know, there's some notion that that a divergence in the capital gains and dividends rates might affect. Uh, corporate capitalization by encouraging one or the other, either retention of earnings or distribution. So, you know, that's a question. And then uh, there's also always the potential for uh, for creating tax shelters if you're going to have, you know, that kind of divergence in, in income where you have a choice. So, you know, all those are probably reasons that people would give if they were really talking about dividends much. So I think another issue here, and, and John and I, I think we were both on the Hill when this change was made, but Prior to the Bush tax cuts, the dividends and capital gains were taxed differently with dividends being taxed at ordinary income rates and capital gains having the prefer rates. So, you know, I think the same argument uh, regarding corporate double tax can be made here with dividends as, as it is with capital gains, uh, perhaps even more directly since stockholders don't really have control over when dividends are paid in some instances, whereas they have a lot more control over when capital gains might be recognized. Absolutely. And I do remember from those days that for a lot of taxpayers, corporate taxpayers that we're talking about here, corporations really cared about the dividend rate because for those industries that are very reliable, regular dividend payers, their stock price depends quite a bit on their ability to pay out dividends and ultimately that dividend rate. So for a lot of corporates, the dividend rate is important too. So very good point, Jennifer. Well, that's all for this week. As I said, we've just started on the Biden capital gains rate proposal and we'll be back next week with part two. In part two, there's a lot more to discuss, like the behavioral effects of changing the capital gains rate, the estate tax consequences, and maybe the most interesting angle of all, something that Tom referenced, which is how to deal with the taxpayer's ability to defer recognition events and therefore defer the tax. Namely, I'm talking about the possibility of a mark-to-market regime for capital assets. But until then, thanks for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, and I hope to see you soon.